Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Diffusion Science Radio, the science show that was setting the social pages alight well before Kate Middleton started wearing blue. And in the studio this week we have myself, Victoria Bond, Philippe Perez, Ian Wolfe, Lachlan Watmore and Peter Waller-Bryant. Today we're talking neutron bond nostalgia and non-browning apples, as well as farewelling Diffusion favourite Victoria Bond for a few months. My name's Mark West and first up, here's the news with Philippe Perez. Astronomers have said that the universe may contain three times the number of stars as is currently thought. These astronomers have based their assessment on new observations showing other galaxies um, may have had very different structures to our own Milky Way galaxy. These researchers have told the journal known as Nature that more stars probably mean many more planets as well, perhaps trillions of Earth-like worlds. The Yale University-led study used the Keck telescope in Hawaii, where it found galaxies older than ours containing 20 times more red dwarf stars than recent ones. For those who don't know, red dwarfs are smaller and dimmer than our own sun. It's only recently that telescopes have been powerful enough to detect them. The findings also have helped to account for what astronomers have dubbed the missing mass in the universe movement of galaxies has suggested there is more material in the cosmos than can be observed. So scientists have suggested that some is invisible, referring it to dark matter. Dr Mark Kukula of the Royal Observatory in Greenwich in the UK had said, the discovery of more stars in the universe have meant that we might not need quite as much dark matter as we thought to explain how the universe looks and behave. If these stars are more common in elliptical galaxies than our own, it's also consistent with the idea that they have a larger number of older stars than us. The lifespan of red dwarfs is many times longer than that of stars like our very own sun. And secondly in the news, a flying armoured car, which has been dubbed the Transformer, will change the fate of troops in Afghanistan four-man truck being developed in the $66 million program has seen uh, helicopters turning at the touch of a button for quick escapes and rescue operations. There's a plan for a prototype due by 2015. Uh, The vehicle is six metres long and will also be able to travel 450 kilometres by land as well as in the air. A very versatile machine. It can be flown by someone who's not a qualified pilot and will be fitted with machine guns and cannons. And that's news for this week here on Diffusion.
and guess which one of those news items came from MX. Now, to continue our war theme here, we have Lachlan Watmore with a little bit of neutron bomb nostalgia. Samuel T. Cohen, the father of the neutron bomb, has died aged 89. The cause was complications from stomach cancer. Mr. Cohen was one of the last innovative nuclear engineers of the Cold War. The purpose of the neutron bomb is to maximise living casualties and minimise material destruction. In other words, kill a lot of people while leaving buildings and infrastructure relatively intact. It would do this by minimising blast and heat while maximising radiation, sending a deadly wave of neutrons right through protective structures like tank armour or fallout bunkers. This wall of subatomic bullets would kill every living thing in its path, large animals like humans mainly by massive damage to the nervous system. At the same time, the reduced blast and heat would, in theory, leave less physical damage to buildings and less nuclear fallout. Samuel Cohen developed the neutron bomb in the late 50s while working for the, the RAND, Rand Corporation. Corporation. It was envisaged to be a more humane nuclear weapon than your regular thermonuclear device because it was, by definition, low yield. Unlike a regular hydrogen bomb, which concentrates its neutrons to ensure the complete consumption of all fissionable material and thus a magnified blast, the neutron bomb releases most of its neutrons in a massive burst due to relatively small changes in the bomb's design and detonation pathway. A Soviet invasion of Western Europe was expected to be, just like the time before, in the shape of a tank-led blitzkrieg. The small size of the neutrons enabled them to penetrate the thickest of tank armour, thus balancing the relatively small armoured forces of NATO against the massive armoured hosts of the Warsaw Pact. So the neutron bomb was designed to be a tactical weapon for the battlefield, not a strategic weapon for threatening the enemy's cities and children. It was to fry Soviet tank crews inside their hulls, not irradiate great chunks of Europe. Several variants of the neutron bomb were made up until the 1990s, but with the end of the Cold War, the Enhanced Radiation Weapon, or ERW, has been largely shelved. Large tank battles no longer seem likely in the near future, and the neutron bomb requires large amounts of tritium to boost the neutron load, which, due to tritium's short life, makes an ERW expensive to maintain. The ethics of the use of the neutron bomb was one of the hottest debates of the 20th century. The weapon, if used properly, could cause less damage to civilian life and property, and the fallout would be minimal as the neutrons dispersed quickly after the initial pulse. However, not all of its blast and heat would be converted to radiation, and the area near Ground Zero would experience a regular nuclear blast measuring in the kilotons. Further out, not all of its targets would die instantly. Soviet personnel on the edge of the radiation zone would die slowly over weeks or months from radiation sickness. It's making me feel slightly sick talking about it half a century later on, so I'll finish off by saying that as someone who came of age during the Reagan administration, I don't miss the Cold War one little bit. Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. Shame me, wake me, tell me it's a dream I gotta be 52 on my TV screen But a man in a tie pointing to the sky Where you gonna run to
class home on a Sunday morning. Mother says, son, we're gonna... So has anyone got any tritium for sale around here? That sounds like a, a wonderful way to go. That was the wonderful neutron bomb, one of the more delightful devices of the Cold War. So why, why aren't we making them, or we, America, Australia, making them any more? Well, they appear to be defunct in a tactical sense because the neutron bomb would work largely on the battlefield rather than in an urban area or an industrial area. You'd use great big... Uh, massive yield nuclear weapons to take out cities and industry whereas uh, you'd use smaller tactical nukes on the battlefield and this thing was meant to leave structures standing even the tanks themselves you'd simply find a bunch of soviet soldiers fried inside the tanks so it was just about cooking organic matter uh effectively yeah cooking organic matter so that uh it would get out of your way it's interesting the way military like b-52 bombers are kind of not so not so useful these days, but they were designed to, to fly low over the Russian tundra, Cold War style, and then as soon as that threat evaporated, uh, left with these weapons that are no good in today's urban guerrilla warfare style environments. But you'd imagine that neutron bombs would have some, some application. Even the science of it's kind of cool. <laughs> the reason we don't use the B-52s is because we have guided missiles. Right, okay, well we don't need them either, yeah. So, you know, we have guided missiles, so we don't need the B-52s. So what happens to all these weapons that are no longer kind of defunct, so to speak? And where do they hide? Well, the Russian ones, the Soviet ones, got bought up and used as nuclear fuel for nuclear power stations in the US. Interesting scientific usage there. But the American ones, not. American ones, yes, well... We're a science program. We don't need to speculate on the, uh, the, the politics of all that. But uh. <laughs> Neutron bombs are very hard to maintain uh, on the shelf anyway because they've got to have their tritium uh, replenished. Tritium is basically heavy... What would you call it? Um, it's a, it's a, an isotope of hydrogen yes. that's now part of a water molecule, so you'd call it heavy water, that's been labelled with tritium. Yeah. Yes. And it's got such a short half-life, I think it's only 12 or so years or something like that, that it's got to be um, uh, replaced. Quite, yes, quite frequently. That's right. Um, I'm just confused. So, so I know that compared to nuclear reactors, nuclear missiles are supposed to have much more radiation in them. Is there a danger to keeping them shelved? I mean, can can the radiation leak at all, or can there be? Well, the material could leak. If these things are stored for decades and decades, then the casings are likely to rust and there'll be decay, and they can just get released into the environment. Isn't there a Russian nuclear submarine lying at the bottom of the Baltic or something that's got nuclear-tipped torpedoes and it's just about to contaminate the Baltic? Or was that some time ago they salvaged it? It seems to ring a bell somewhere. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Our comrades, we sail into history. <laughs> this is a story of the future, but not the very distant future. It is a story that might have taken place the day after tomorrow. Like all stories of the future, however, its beginnings lie far back in the past. As far back as the first man on Earth to gaze at the stars and wonder if someday, somehow, he might travel to them. Travel through space. Sometimes mishaps occurred. 
and men paid for them with their lives. But the work went on. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Across Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and across the world on the podcast at www.diffusionradio.com. All right, and uh, from one discussion to another, uh, we've got another talking point on Diffusion today, because the studio is full of guests, if you haven't noticed. Um, A couple weeks ago, we were talking about the Frankenfish, and you might remember we put a poll on our Facebook, would you eat a genetically modified salmon? The salmon has been modified to grow up to three times the size of its natural quote-unquote counterparts. Um, Today we've got another GMO, genetically modified organism, courtesy of Okanagan Specialty Fruits, based in Summerland, British Columbia, and it's seeking approval for U.S. agriculture and food and drug regulators. The crop is an apple that's been genetically modified to look better cosmetically. So when you cut open an apple, you know how you hate when the slices turn brown and it just looks kind of mucky. You don't really want to eat it. Now, the folks at Okanagan Specialty Fruits thought that apples that wouldn't brown would sell much better. So they've genetically modified these apples to uh, look pristine all the time. And the gene modification actually silences the gene that makes the enzyme that creates the brown color. It's actually technology that was uh, originally developed in Australia on potatoes, but the guys in British Columbia stole the patent and now they're applying it. I think it's an interesting talking point because as opposed to other reasons, it's it's one of the first crops that's been modified for cosmetic reason. And it's mm. it's it's following with an onslaught of many, many genetically modified crops and foods that are currently being waiting, pending approval for the FDA. So first I'm wondering if we could take off the discussion, would you eat this crop? Yeah, I'd probably eat the crop as long as it didn't do me any harm. That's just sort of bottom line there, isn't it? What do you guys reckon? Well, isn't it it going brown is because of oxidation and the reason we don't want to eat it when it's brown is because it's less edible it's starting to go off so if you can't tell when the apple's gone off that sounds dangerous it is a bit creepy i mean it the apples evolved that way to to look brown for a certain reason well that that's interesting is it is it is it stopping it going off or is it just stopping it looking like it's going off it's stopping it looking like it's going off. All right, well then that's then that's dodgy. But if it's just uh, if it's preventing the actual oxidation forever, yeah, yeah. See, that interesting. It's an interesting question. And and compared to the salmon, I found this one particularly interesting. The salmon was for you know we could feed so many more people with these larger fish. Wouldn't that be wonderful? This is just it's purely cosmetic, and it's also interesting in that they are just silencing a gene that belongs to the apple. They're not splicing it with anything that's unnatural or from another organism well that uh, that was i think the biggest uh, query that came in on, on facebook and on the email when we were talking about the gen- genetically modified salmon i think i made the point that it was just speeding up evolution it's like breeds of dogs or something and somebody wrote in and said no it's not just it's not just like breeding breeds of dogs until you get what you want because you're splicing in genes from somewhere else and it's not necessarily natural in quote unquote um so this would have less ethical concerns in that sense and you're just turning a gene off I'm especially interested in this company because I've been to Lake Okanagan in Kelowna in British Columbia where they grow the apples and where they grow lots of different fruits and I've seen them experimenting. They had peaches with holes in the middle. So they've got all sorts of odd things out there. There's supposed to be a lake monster there as well. <laughs> Maybe a genetically modified well, lake yeah, monster. Well, yeah, sort of leads to that, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's just a big salmon that's escaped. 
So perhaps we can, uh, we've got some additional panelists coming in. We, you've, you're all familiar with our science voices, but... Um, We're not science minds at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> so Peter and, and Philippe, do, do you guys have any opinion on this crop? Well, I'd certainly be concerned if um, there was a bad apple in a supermarket that wasn't looking bad um, while they're being sold and kind of being disguised as being good. It's a very it's a cons- big consumer issue in the whole spectra of things. It reminds me of um, on the internet you have a lot of uh, these experiments done with McDonald's hamburgers where they will um, have and it's dubious because recently a lot of people have introduced the McDonald's hamburgers to different types of bacteria and and yielded actual mould on on the burger which was unheard of apparently Um, but basically the the burger stays pristine for upwards of 10 15 years and 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 it's quite nerve-wracking what what happens if if I were by chance to happen upon that burger and say not that I would (laughs) say look at this burger it looks perfect let's eat it what damage would it do to my body um and (laughs) that's what it makes me think with these apples and like I I'm very bad at, at maintaining fresh food in my fridge and I had some um some apples sitting in the bottom there for a very long time and they looked perfect but I did not eat them because I, I I had no idea what was going on with them what could um the effect of these kind of apples be to a human's digestive system that's what i'd be interested interested in in knowing well i was going to play devil's advocate because currently what um supermarkets do is they irradiate apples so they look beautiful forever but i'm wondering is gene silencing really that much worse than radiating our food and we don't know the effect that these apples have because they're they're an unknown entity So, long-term effects, who knows? We'll find out if it's approved, maybe in 50 years. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of sciences found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. So it's actually a very sad week for us all here at uh, Diffusion. We're all uh, having a, a bit of a cry because it's uh, Victoria's last week in here for quite a few months, I think till maybe May next year or something like that. So you're not going to be hearing her, her sweet North American voice on the radio in, over Christmas. Uh, but Victoria's actually off to do something quite interesting in Africa, in Tanzania in particular. Victoria, tell us. Well, Mark, you say it's a sad occasion, but really I've seen you've already cracked open some beers, so it's a bit of a celebratory day at Diffusion as well. <laughs> I'm going to be flying out to Muheza in Tanzania, which is a tiny little rural centre. Um, and there's a hospital at in this village called Muheza called the Diana Centre, where um, they basically hand out 
antiretrovirals for people who have HIV. In particular, I'm going to be working on the pediatric ward, so um, kids in Tanzania who have HIV. And they are participating in a study which is run by the Department of Immunization and Research at Sydney University on pneumococcus. And that's the bacteria which can cause pneumonia, um, particularly badly in kids with HIV. And you're in third year uni now? You've just finished up? Fourth year. Fourth year university. Okay, so do you get any credit for this or is it just part of the part well, of the process? Yeah, it's, it's part of the process. We have uh, an eight-week period where we can organise anything that we want. So we can do a dissection course with the University of Sydney or we, as long as we can work, say, Westmead, they have very good elective programs over there. I wanted to go overseas, so I've been speaking with my supervisor, Dr. Robert Boy, which you may have heard on Diffusion quite a few times, um, who runs that research out there. In particular, it's been a little bit dicey because, um, as is typical when you're working with developing countries, the, uh, the ethics has yet to be approved. So we're, we wanted to work with the new vaccine for pneumococcus, a 13-valent vaccine, which has been approved almost everywhere around the world, but has yet to be approved in Tanzania. Um, their own version of the FDA is, is okay. being very thorough. Well, that's <laughs> so what I'll be doing out there is actually a little bit different. I'll be auditing the medical health records. And what we want to look at is, um, as you're soon to find out, I think, Mark, children are little fantastic little carriers of infection. So um, not only are their immune systems not very good, but their hygiene is also bad. And they just touch their little sticky fingers everywhere and they pop them in their mouths and they get quite sick and then they just spread diseases. And what I want to see is um, do the children, when they come to the Diana Center for their antiretrovirals, do they get sicker because they're around more children? And that's that could be quite significant because it would lead, if what we think is true, that when they all come in on a Friday, say, to get their antiretrovirals and they get sicker, um, we'd have to stagger out the appointments You'd have to change your whole clinical protocol, wouldn't you? That's right. Yeah. In terms of HIV in Africa, there's actually quite a big advance over there, I, I believe. Somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's been there's been shifting attitudes, definitely. Um, this research that we're doing out there, it's it's a bit difficult for me. I haven't been out there yet, but I'm stealing myself because not all of the children get antiretrovirals. It's very expensive therapy, so it's generally... The kids that are doing all right don't get access to the medication, and it's the kids that are sick that get access to the medication. And also, just in terms of vaccine scheduling, it's only kids of a certain age that can participate in the study, and we only get funding for for younger children as opposed to older children, and it's it's all a little bit sticky for someone who believes in the principle of first do no harm and helping other people. Do you find yourself in a sort of a triage situation in that in that way? But I'm I'm really excited to go out there and and find out, see from my own eyes, because I was in the Northern Territory at the beginning of this year, and to me that experience felt like Sorry. being in a developing country. It is. It it it, it was pretty shocking, yeah. but at the same time, the clinics were government funded. There was federal backing. The nurses were all tra- nurses and doctors were all trained in Australia. I think it'll be really interesting to go out there and see what the clinics are over there. So who funds those clinics in Tanzania? Um, Some of them are federally funded by the Tanzanian government, but I know that the hospital that I'm going to also gets quite a lot of funding because Australian, this Australian department is doing research there. Okay. And then I guess you come back to your placement in Penrith. (laughs) That'll be quite hard as well. 
Well, first I'm going to be uh, working in Manhattan. Oh, right. <laughs> at Columbia University. So I'll be doing infectious diseases in backwater Tanzania and then going straight to New York City. Fantastic. And then back to Nepean. And then back to Penrith. That's quite a triangle, isn't it? Mm. Tanzania to New York City to Nepean Hospital. I think that's what you get on T-shirts, don't you? New York, <laughs> yeah. uh, Zanzibar, Zanzibar, Penrith. Penrith. <laughs> <laughs> and hello to our Penrith listeners out there. Yeah, we'll, we love you guys. In we'll the speak place. a little slower for you now. That'll do. I grew up in the western suburbs, if you don't mind. I live in the western <laughs> suburbs, if you don't mind. <laughs> Good luck, good luck, Victoria. Have yeah. you had a really wonderful time, and uh, yeah. your, your valuable contribution to Diffusion will be and missed. Get all your jabs and stuff, all right? I already have. Good. <laughs> I'll be, um, actually, funnily enough, I'm, I'm going to be taking doxycycline, which is an anti-malarial because there's quite a lot of malaria there, and, you know, it's not a very fun disease to have. And last time I went in, in an area like that, I used to live in Madagascar. I took Calarium which is a once-a-week anti-malarial tablet, and I just got profoundly psychotic. So this time I, <laughs> I, I thought, you know, I'm going to go with doxycycline, which is still the, one of the cheaper ones, and it makes you photosensitive. And mm, um, it does. for our listeners that haven't seen what I look like, I'm pretty pasty. So you're going to Africa on a photosensitive drug. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? So, okay, it's so it's photosensitive to your skin, not your eyes? Your skin. Oh, okay. Yeah, I remember taking it in India and getting very burnt. Uh, it doesn't make you feel great either. <laughs> Sunscreen. But it's better than malaria. And sadly, that's all the time we have in this week's edition of the Diffusion Science Radio Show. If you if you have any comments or queries about today's show or any show that you might have heard in the past, you can get over to our website at diffusionradio.com or you can email us at diffusion at 2scr.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Today's show was broadcast from the studios of 2SCR in Sydney on 107.3, across Australia on the Community Radio Network and across the world on our podcast. It was produced this week by Ian Wolfe with plenty of technical assistance from Victoria Bond. Contributing to the show were Victoria Bond, Philippe Perez, Ian Wolfe, Lachlan Watmore and Peter Waller-Bryant. My name is Mark West. And that's it for the show, and that's the last you'll see of Victoria for a little while, so why don't you send in some emails to let her know how you feel. We'll catch you next week on Diffusion Science Radio.